You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. And here comes your intro. Welcome to M Squared TechCast, a live internet radio show offering the latest news and interviews with the people driving business, technology, and politics in Michigan. Now, your hosts, Matt Rausch and Mike Brennan. Well, Mike Brennan, we're waiting for Matt to join us, but I thought we'd go ahead and get started. We have Dave Weaver joining us on the show today, and then later in the show, we'll be having uh, Fred Brown, our epidemiologist, to uh, provide us with <laughs> that recap on a very busy week last week with vaccines and different things going on in that space. It's just amazing how rapidly things are moving. But Dave Weaver, is uh, uh, is it the chief investment officer for Cityside Ventures, Dave? Correct. Yes. Okay. We've had Dave on the show today and reasonably brought him back this time, other than he's a handsome guy and we all wanted you to be able to see him for Christmas, is that he's also going to recap the 2020 investment year in which uh, his group invested a little under $1.4 million in 18 uh, startups. So why don't we talk a little bit about that, Dave? Uh, is there a common thread in those startups? Was there, you know, in terms of uh, what they do or uh, what their service or product was or anything like that? Um, well, I have some stats on um, the mix, okay? Sure. That's what you're getting to. Um, out of the 18, the one domination uh, sector was uh, MedTech. They had five of those. Uh, next was B2B to C with four, but we had a smattering of uh, artificial intelligence, uh, B2B, digital, uh, lifestyle, and AR, VR. So we had quite a mix of technologies. Um, we're trying not to focus on just one area. We want to find the best deals that make the most sense to our investors and uh, bring them in. In most cases, the deals have been pre-revenue. We've been lucky in a few of the companies that have had revenue. And when you look at the recap, which I sent you for 2020, um, considering this group only started in September of 2019, um, and we've uh, invested in 18 different companies, you know, five the first year in 2019 and 13 this year with only nine meetings this year. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know of another group in the state that does that many deals in one year by themselves, you know, and uh, so we're very proud of our record. Like you said, um, a little over. Uh, 1.4 million roughly in, in investments made in those companies over that period of time. So we have check people are willing to write checks and pick deals that they like. So I'm not a math major. That's why I'm in journalism, but uh, so somewhere in the ballpark of 70, 80,000, a hundred thousand per deal, something like that. Yeah, that's probably a good average um, size of the deal. Um, some deals, um, the minimum is like 100K. So sometimes ah. uh, if it's 100K minimum and the individuals are going to write 100K by themselves, you might do an SPV, special purpose vehicle, or it's a special uh, LLC that's formed so people will pull their money together to get that minimum and get a piece of more deals that way as well. They don't have to come in as heavy on every deal. So we've had like three SPVs uh, during this course of time where people can come in with as little 5 or 10K 
but up the ante, you know, to get to a nice size investment. Yeah, and then, uh, sir, uh, you also syndicate with other angel groups around the state, I'm assuming, and maybe outside the state? So far, nobody outside the state, although we've had some interest. I'm starting to establish more relationships with angel groups in the Midwest and outside the, the state of Michigan and the Midwest for syndication of deals. We are getting investments sent to us by other angel groups and people around the country, but dominantly it's been in Michigan uh, for syndication. Uh, we've had some folks in um, Red Cedar and, and uh, Blue Water Angels, you know, syndicate deals with us, and we go back the same way to bring deals to them. So that's picking up. Most of these deals need more than one angel group, so you really have to find peace. You're either last in or you help them syndicate it after you go in. Okay. Uh, and then I know in, the, in your previous life you were leading the Great Lakes Angels, which was Michigan, Ohio, and parts of Ontario. Uh, are your investors still from that geographics, the old world, as it were, the old space, or is it just exclusively Michigan investors? No, we do have some people from outside the state that are joining uh, Birmingham Angels. We have uh, some folks interested in the New York, New Jersey area, actually, because they see a lot of good value in the, uh, the valuations and technology here in Michigan. We've got some folks interested in Chicago and Atlanta and stuff like that. Uh, plus, I was just on a recent call with some of the folks in Ontario that I think um, would like to look at our deals and vice versa, you know, to do that. So the market's opening up now that uh, a lot of companies are presenting in Zoom. Uh, it used to be you didn't invest in something, a company, unless you can like drive to it like the VCs. But now uh, all the face-to-face is done on Zoom. So the geography is getting to be less of a barrier. As you know, uh, Duran, my partner, is from Israel. So we're looking at deals coming from Israel as well. Matter of fact, a couple of deals that will close this year will be from Israel um, that we've done. So that's opening that door there. Yeah, um, yeah we we contribute to um, uh, finding the right kind of investors that are willing to understand the risk um, with a platform, a side pitch we put together uh, for doing all the due diligence and making it completely transparent to the investors has really helped them make a decision. And one reason we can do so many deals in such a short period of time is the amount of data that the entrepreneurs are forced to feed into the system that saves mm-hmm. a lot of due diligence time afterwards rather than, well, you forgot that, give this, please send us this, and you wait a week for them to respond. You know, that drags out. Yeah. I know having raised money as a CEO before, you <laughs> stop chasing the money and execute. So we like to make it a lot faster for them. So all the deals that we've closed on um, have been less than 60 days from the time they pitch to the time they get our check. That's right. remarkable. And that's wow. because of the side pitch platform that we use. And uh, so it's the, side, the platform is open for both investors to find more deals, to register as an investor, or entrepreneurs anywhere. They don't have to be just in Michigan wow. to uh, put their deal on there and be visible to investors that can see their deal as well. Okay. The head's so loose. David Bird- I was going to say the head blue devil has now joined us. Uh, Matt yes. Roush, go ahead. Matt. <laughs> yeah, sorry, sorry, I'm late. Um, I just wanted to know: Did you? I mean, who did you develop this with? Who'd you work with on it? And what were your examples, sort of, to create this new website? Oh well, we were just talking about uh, the the investment in general. I hadn't got to the point, but go ahead and introduce. You sent me this link this just before the showtime. Yeah, yeah. It's called. Side pitch, and that's what Matt was referring to. Why don't you talk a little right. bit about it, that? It, I mean, it, it really it is really interesting. That's <laughs> I'm late to this uh, podcast here. Sorry, I was, I was looking at the side pitch and I kind of got lost in it. 
So yeah, it can happen. It started out being just side pitch for um, our own use internally, and Duran started that um, two and a half years ago. Or so right. with the with a programmer who's working with him inside of Cityside at the time, and then he's been using outsourcing programmers uh, to help develop it. But uh, it was a place where we get the deal flow and do what we want to do with it as a venture management system, but also um, uh, be able to syndicate easier with other groups by everything all in one package, their video presentation, their cap table, all the business information, whatever they want to put up there. And and we ask for it can be either in their input or as attachments to it. So if an investor missed a presentation in our group, they can go see the video, you know, inside that uh, folder for that company and stuff that really helps facilitate the transactions. Now, as we spent more time with this, uh, we decided to add new features to it, which is what you can see if you log on to site pitch now. Below where you log in as an investor or an entrepreneur, there's lots of information. Now it's a portal for collecting and transmitting information on an early stage investments, technology, and startups. That's hmm. all we want to talk about. We don't want to talk about anything else other than this angel community area for investors, companies getting education information on this on the place. You can put podcasts there. You can put content on there. And uh, we want to aggregate all kinds of information. We know where you are in the country. You can get important information. And it's current. It's refreshed. Mm-hmm. You know, that there for months. It's there for maybe a few days or a week at the most, and it's gone. Uh, well, saving history, but there's new content coming up all the time. Well, amazing. Yeah, he spent a lot of time on this, and uh, it's still evolving, but it's uh, we're not done yet. And it's available to the public at SidePitch.com? Yeah, SidePitch.com. You don't need to be an investor or um, an entrepreneur to look at the content there. It's always good for everybody, mm-hmm. and um, it's a good resource, uh, Mike, for you to let people know if they're looking for stuff only in this area. Uh, you do a little lot more than that, but this is the sole focus of this thing here. We're glad to support the, the angel community and investors, entrepreneurs in this in this market sector. Huh. So, so go is, ahead, man. There, is, there a fee, is there a fee for investors to get the inside dope on all these companies or a fee on companies or both? or how, what, right. What's the revenue structure like? Yeah, right now, the, just having the content there for everybody to see on, on, the, on that portal is uh, no fee for anybody that's viewing it. Okay, eventually there might be a fee for somebody posting something, but right now that's not the case. Now, as an investor, if you want to start seeing the deals, right now in Michigan there's no fee, but there will be a fee structure of that. That will be a SaaS, um, SaaS model. Okay, and the companies, when they register, pay a registration fee. It's a small fee, but now they have visibility to you know hundreds, hopefully, of, and more of angel investors, and in our case, they have exposure to us with people are writing checks on a regular basis, you know, and we will, we'll, we'll continue doing that. We expect a real good 2021. Yeah. All right. We got about two minutes left. So let's uh, compress down this. Maybe people may not be familiar. I've heard all the time. Oh, just get money from a venture capitalist. I go, no, that's way down the line, you know? No. So talk about what angel investors typically do. We're early stage right behind family and friends that help you get started. But when you want private money outside, you go to angels. Those are wealthy individuals who are willing to part with their own money and take the risk early on, oftentimes before you even have your first customers. You're just trying to get validation in the marketplace. There's a real business opportunity. 
we help evaluate that. If we think it's real and you're real as a leader and the founder of the company, then we'll talk about putting some money into it. We'll look at convertible debt or priced rounds. We'll do both. As I said, most of our companies are pre-revenue, but they started putting together a team that got good advisors and they got a good uh, plan and they have some barriers to entry. It's really important. Uh, we don't want to invest in a company that has no protection somehow um, against people coming in and ripping off the technology with our money. <laughs> no, absolutely. All right. And then uh, just real quickly, if people want to reach out to you uh, to contact uh, Cityside Ventures or Birmingham Angels or anything, how do they do that? Uh, D. Weaver at CitysideVentures.com. Okay. Thanks, Dave Weaver. Appreciate you being on the show today. Thank We're going to take a little uh, short commercial break so we can plug the Blue Devils here. And then uh, we'll come back with Dr. Doom, Fred Brown, who's going to talk to us about all the scary stuff going on out there in the COVID world and all, all the good stuff, too, with vaccines. Right. So yeah. right now, yes. So this is Mike Brennan. And it's Matt Roush. And we'll be back very shortly. Thanks. What do you get at Lawrence Technological University? Everything. Great labs and studios, supportive professors, plus a full campus life, NAIA athletics, and all the software you need to succeed. Be smart. Be more. At LTU, possible is everything. Salaries of Lawrence Tech grads are among the highest of any university in America. Plan a campus visit to meet with counselors, faculty, and coaches. Why wait? Find out more at ltu.edu. Lawrence Technological University graduates earn a degree and a higher starting salary. In fact, when it comes to earning potential, the Brookings Institution ranks LTU fifth among U.S. colleges and universities. Be enriched. Be more. At LTU, possible is everything. Salaries of Lawrence Tech grads are among the highest of any university in America. Plan a campus visit to meet with counselors, faculty, and coaches. Why wait? Find out more at ltu.edu. Hey, it's Matt Roush. And Mike Brennan. And we're back with another segment of the M Squared TechCast. Uh, you know him, you love him. Uh, he's been our guest since way back in the spring when all this madness first started. It is our very own epidemiologist and uh, infectious disease expert, uh, Fred Brown. Fred, this is uh, kind of a red-letter day that we have you here on. Um, this is the first day in the United States that the Pfizer-BioNTech um vaccine is being administered to people outside of a study. Yes. Um, yes. So I guess, I guess this is good news, but there's, uh, you know, this is, this is the first crack of dawn in the, uh, in the uh, um, astronomical twilight here, right? It's still pretty dark out there. I like that. That's a, that's a good metaphor. So. It, 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 it's dark. And, and before the light always is, it's a little bit darker. Yes. Uh, so we're going, we're going in a bad, in a bad direction, but the good news is this is probably one of the best vaccine study results I've ever seen. And I've been in this business a long time. Yeah. I thought I'd go, I, if you like, I can, I can go through that with you. I, uh, I have a little presentation I put together based on everything that was presented to, the, to my, me and the FDA over the, over the course of the last two, two weeks. And I have a little collection of slides. Would you like to take a look and see what we have? Sure. Look at her. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, while, sure. you're, while you're spooling that up, um, yes. over the weekend, everyone was bragging about how quickly that this vaccine was developed. But then they were saying part of it was they had the sort of the basic framework from the SARS vaccine that was developed 18 years ago. And this falls into the same va family. And this is not my area of expertise. It's yours. Are they correct? They're right. Yeah, we we ha this is based on a lot of research that we've been able to do 
over the last 20 years. And SARS uh, is also a coronavirus, very closely related. This is SARS coronavirus 2. So SARS 1 is, is as close as, is about 85% uh, consistent with, uh, with, with SARS 2. So huh. look at the gene, gene code. And so it's very similar. And we were able to use uh, that, that the same vector technologies, the same uh, mRNA technologies as for, for SARS-1 as we did for SARS-2. The sad thing about those vaccines uh, we developed for SARS-1 is that nothing we've developed so far is, more than, is, is durable for more than 18 months. So that's mm. something we really have to watch for in the, in the future. But, but uh, these results are, are fabulous. And I thought, I'd, I, I don't know if you guys can see my screen okay. Yeah, um, yep. I'm in. I, I, I'm using uh, PDF files this time, so it's not going to be as smooth, possibly, as a <laughs> ah. what I'm in PowerPoint. But uh, but uh, this was what what was put uh, in front of uh, uh, Verbeck. Uh, so Verbeck is uh, is the is the um, is is the group that actually advises. It's the advisory council to vaccines and, and biologicals uh, council that advises the FDA about whether we should go forward or not. And uh, at the end of the day. Uh, I believe we've got 21 people on it, uh, something like that. Uh, on, on this particular one, to kind of look at everything, these are mostly you know professors. They, they certainly have to announce any any conflicts of interest they have before they go on. on. Some of them own a few shares of Pfizer stock. A few of them, you know, had uh, were made made some you know uh, had had uh, advised uh, uh, other companies in the in the in the course of their careers. But no one has any conflicts of interest. Everyone looks at this completely objectively. Most of them are medical doctors, PhDs uh, at universities. Uh, and so uh, they're they're looking at this stuff very closely, and um, uh, this was uh, uh, this was a, a question that was put to the vote. Uh, this is on, this is on the on the tenth of December. So the question, yes or no, is basically a risk benefit analysis uh, based on what these experts mm-hmm. think about the data they've seen. And so the question they had before them was, based on the totality of all the scientific evidence available, do the benefits of Pfizer BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine outweigh its risks for use in individuals uh, 16 years of age and older. So that this is what was presented. Basically, uh, here's the whole process that Pfizer went through. They went through, uh, and this is, as, as you said, very rapid. And the reason it was rapid is, number one, our research program was largely developed. We only had to a couple of days to create something that was suitable uh, for SARS-CoV-2. Two or the COVID based on SARS that was Moderna. Pfizer took a little longer. They they ended up uh, so um, Moderna had something ready to go after two days. Uh, Pfizer took um, well, you can see a letter of intent with BioNTech, and then they had to choose uh, based on the uh, based on phase one results which candidate they wanted to take. And they took they had four candidates, and they took on July twenty fourth. So this is January uh, uh, or January uh, as I recall tenth. Uh, when the when the genetic code was announced, uh, uh, they took you know January, February, March, uh, April, May, June, and July, so almost almost six months to figure out um, uh, which uh, so, I'm sorry, slightly over six months to decide which of, of four candidates they're going to take. Uh, and let's take a look now. And what we do is we go through the genetic sequence that that was announced as uh, uh, this, this, <laughs> this arrow is a little bit uh, overly pessimistic. It was actually announced, I believe, on January 10th. We did the animal studies uh, literally within a month uh, or two, uh, which is pretty quick. But don't forget, we were looking at existing technologies and, and confirming results. Uh, and then we had the process development, which we the United States paid for in most in most cases, not in the case of Pfizer, but in most cases we did that. And we went right into phase one uh, in April, 
Uh, and then we went into pivotal phase two, three trials uh, based on the results of those phase one trials in July. So let's take a look at phase one trial results. And here, what they were trying to do is they were trying to show that the people who took uh, their vaccine uh, had two kinds of immune response. The first kind of immune response is, is antibody circulation. So did, were, were you, did you have neutralizing antibodies in your blood after you took the vaccine? And here you can see uh, what happened. This was, uh, and they did this for four, four different, uh, uh, four different uh, kinds of, of drug. They chose this one, uh, BNT162B2. Uh, um, and you can see uh, between the ages of 18 and 55, we see that um, uh, they, they had different categories uh, and different days. 50, here's day 52. Uh, here, so this is after about a month here, and, and you can start to see after dosing. Uh, so no, no, nothing here day one. You'd expect that. Uh, you, you had uh, day 21. You had some, you had some titer, uh, and then uh, at day 28, you had quite a bit of titer, and day 35 and 40, you can see start to see so peaks up and then come back down again, which is what you expect. HCS is how much is in the population uh, generally, and so. Uh, you can see that we basically uh, these are for the, uh, when, when when you're infected. So what happened is we were able to demonstrate definitively that we had as much antibody titer uh, in our bodies after taking the vaccine as we, as people who were infected did. You see mm -hmm. that? So that's what those that's what that shows. And it didn't matter whether you were 18 or 85, you still had an, an immune response. A little bit lower in the uh, in the uh, 85, 65, 85, but still really good. Uh, and very consistent with what we see in nature. So that's the first question. Do you have antibodies kind of moving around your body uh, that are going to attack the virus before it can attack you? And that's always a good thing uh, to have because you want to block the virus as much as you can. So the great news is we have those floating antibodies, but we don't think that's enough. Typically in, 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 in coronavirus, you need to have not just the floating antibodies, you also have to have memory antibodies. So your body, when, I, when these memory antibodies detect COVID coming in, they actually will produce much more antibody. Uh, and so that's what, what they call CD4 and CD8 levels. And so we also looked at those. And here you see the same thing. Not only uh, is uh, when, when you get, your, the, the, we're having a 30 microgram dose here, uh, you can see uh, we're, here's what ha happens naturally. And here on the CD4 cells, those are memory, memory T cells, uh, you get uh, not only it's actually a better response uh, than if you were infected. This is this is not normal. Most time, most times with vaccines, you get a slight about the same or slightly less. But in this case, our memory was better on the vaccine than it was even uh, even when you had the real disease. And the same thing's true about CD8. These are uh, priming for uh, uh, for uh, killer T cells. And you can see same kinds of things, uh, kind of a tenfold increase over natural, uh, uh, what's naturally there uh, in some cases. So that's, that was tremendous. And we, so we were expecting some really great results. And you can see, we even started to look at four different kinds of antibodies. This is the interleukin uh, family that we were looking at to see, uh, you know, uh, which, which, uh, which of these, um, which of these uh, antibodies are most neutralized. So that's what happened at the end of phase one. And so based on that, we said, hey, you know, we should be able now to go into human trials. We've done the animal studies. Everything worked out well. We did mice. We did uh, uh, non-human primates. 
all of them showed good good efficacy, even with challenge tests, which means you give them the vaccine and then you 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 breathe the the bad the the bad uh, uh, virus onto them, and even then people were the, the, these non-human primates uh, were protected. We went into humans, we did that, we showed the immune response was great uh, at a statistically significant level, and so in in June July, they said we want to test. Initially, they said thirty thousand people. And they, they, they enrolled the 30,000 people through September. And they said, you know what? It's not, we, we'd like to do more with the elderly and more with minority uh, patients. And so we're going to supercharge our study with, elder, with the elderly and minority patients to really make sure we've got something that's going, that's going across all populations and all demographies. And so they went to 44,000 healthy subjects. Um, and uh, there were some inclusion exclusion criteria which you should, which we'll go through, and we should, you know, should take those to heart. Uh, and we wanted a, base, a balanced racial ethnicity profile, which you'll see in a second. We did exclude immunocompromised. We did exclude, exclude pregnant females. We did exclude those under sixteen. Uh, we did exclude those people who had adverse events, uh, uh, adverse allergies, uh, for people who were taking EpiPen uh, with them uh, when they take uh, their shots because they had they're known to have bad uh, reactions. So those are some of the excluded people. But you can see here, the demography was really strong. We're 44,000 people, 21,000 people got the actual drug, and 21,000 people got the placebo. And you can see um, uh, the basically is a, it's about a 50-50 split for male, female. These are randomized. So what happens is the doctor will say, you know, you should, uh, you should uh, inject patient number six uh, with uh, this, with with this, with this uh, of syringe, and the doctor will take that syringe without knowing what what that's in that uh, is in that syringe or who the person is that who he's treating, because uh, completely randomized. They'll inject that person, and then we'll find out what happens. And, and sometimes the person will have gotten placebo, just the saline solution. Other times they'll have the active ingredient. Uh, and then we look at the differences. That's called a double-blinded uh, placebo-controlled. Uh, clinical trial. That's the that's the way we designed this test, and those are by far the most sensitive and specific trials that we've got um, to use uh, to decide whether something's efficacious or not. So here's the break breakdown. Do you guys? What do you guys think? You happy with the breakdown? Uh, yeah. You think it's pretty fair? Mm-hmm. Well, not. I mean, no not bias? being an expert in these sorts of things, um, <laughs> it's, it's a little bit. It's a little bit below. Um, the uh, the societal representation of black folks um, altogether, which I think is like 13, 14%, but yep. it's 10%, so that's reasonably close, I guess. Yeah, uh, you know, almost 4,000, uh, as I recall, in the 4,000 range. Uh, yeah, a little over 4,000, excuse me, for 4,200 uh, black or African-American uh, people uh, had, had to, to, uh, you know, had, was in, were in the trial. Uh, and that, that's a, 4,000 people is a lot of people. We, I mean, we, we frequently will do a, a vaccine trial with just, you know, th- two or 3,000, depending on how prevalent it, it is and, and what the infection rates are and so on in, in the area where we're, we're doing the injection. So 4,000 people is, is, is statistically significant. Um, and you can even break it down to that. You know, you can even start to look at, you know, uh, uh, people of an ethnicity plus their health risks and so on. And so when we do right. it, you can see that Pfizer is really happy about the fact they got el- a lot of elderly in, in this trial, right? Cause we were really worried. They're the most, they're the people who are most susceptible. And if we'd had serious adverse events that overwhelmed uh, the, the benefit of, of, of the vaccine in the, in this age group, you would have had a big problem. 
But you can see, basically, they're highly represented, and you'll see in a second the results. That's the demography. Uh, so just remember that when you when you watch the rest of the slides. Again, okay. At a high level. <laughs> the one area where we are weak, frankly, was the air uh, was the age sixteen to eighteen. Uh, we only had about a hundred people in that age group, and so you saw those four four people who voted against uh, allowing the sixteen year olds to be vaccinated. They didn't think that was a good idea out of the total committee. Uh, that was because we were underrepresentative in that age group. We just didn't have that many of them. Here's how how the efficacy analysis worked. You can see that they had you, you got your you got your drug 21 days, and then second uh, you got your drug, and 21 days later you got your second dose, and then they, they're going to follow these people for tw- for uh, for two years. That includes safety as well. They're going to look at safety after two months and after six months. After the six months are over, <laughs> they will then apply for what they call a BLA. This is for an EUA, uh, emergency use authorization. The BLA. Is what what most drugs have. And that's a that's a biological license application. Uh, that that actually uh, then permits uh, that that's the full licensure. The emergency one is just for cases like this where we have. An, uh, a, well, I, I I do like the little diagrams on the heads there on what they're you being do. for. It, uh, <laughs> it, it looks like the one on the left is severely thinning hair on the top of the head. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, I'm not quite we, sure what the other ones are. We we do this so there's no so so the so the people understand. You know, we, 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 uh, there, there were a lot of people who are speaking lots of different languages in the test. And so yeah. it's important. We, we, we've got uh, we, one on the left. Looks like a, looks, it looks like a bad comb over, but go on. So. And, 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 and so when we do our consent, uh, consent part, part of that is making sure people know what they're getting, what they're getting themselves into. And so everyone had to sign a consent saying, yes, I agree that I want to be part of this trial. And that was part of the trial. We had, you know, show pictures sometimes to some people just to make sure they really understood. Uh, and that's true about young children as well. So then we had the primary endpoints. And so here you can see that the endpoint uh, case was if you had one of these symptoms, right? And it could be very mild. You could have a mild fever or a mild cough or a little bit of chill. You say, no, I don't feel that great. I'm going to go to the doctor. And if you then tested positive in a central laboratory uh, PCR, which is our most sensitive test, and, and and the test said, yep, you've got you've got COVID, at that point, you'd be set aside and say, okay, we're going to monitor this person because we're not sure whether that person has placebo or whether it's active ingredient, active injected, right? So we're going to take a look. Uh, and and, and when, when we break open the code, we'll know whether that person was injected with the real drug or whether it was just a saline solution. So we, we that's what we do. And um, you'll see that there are a lot of people who thought they got sick, but actually weren't. Um, uh, and uh, based on the PCR test. Uh, mm-hmm. So based on PCR test confirmation, this is largely, you know, kind of you feeling a little bit like you have a flu, plus a little bit more. So then here's what happened. So the efficacy, we said we found eight. So we, we, we broke open that, that, that big collection. Of, there were 170 people who felt sick and then were confirmed. Of that 170, we found eight that actually had been injected and 162 who had the placebo. Now, if, a, if our test wasn't working, you'd expect that to be 50-50, right? Each, each group has having 85, mm-hmm. in that case, out of 170. But we found only eight with the, with the vaccine, which means that the VE, which <clears throat> is the vaccine efficacy, that vaccine efficacy, you know, in this case, was 95%. 
And we're very, very confident. The confidence interval for 95% confidence um, is, uh, is, is 90 to 97%. So we're in that, in that range of true standard deviations of being either at 90% or 97%, 98% of all of this happening by, there's almost a no, no, no chance of ha- this happening by chance, right? It's, the, the, the p-values are, are fabulous. So we think this is an extremely effective vaccine. Even if you took the very worst possible scenarios of the analysis, uh, it's still an incredibly effective vaccine. The best vaccines we have in the world today are measles vaccines. They're 98%. Everything I've worked on has been less than 90%. And these are for childhood diseases and so on. So this is an extremely good outcome. And here is the breakdown. Uh, so if you're worried about uh, you know, uh, your, uh, whether it was, whether those infections, whether it was less effective in, for example, people who are less than 64 years old or over 60 or over 65, you can see that in fact, the, 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 the ex- efficacy down here still always is uh, above 90 or, or so percent with the exception of, uh, all the, all others, uh, races, uh, and, uh, and some of the results that we had in, in Brazil, um, but uh, uh, you, you can see that we're talking about something that's incredibly effective at a, at a very, very high confidence level uh, based on, uh, on on the results. And part of the results of Brazil was we couldn't, if we'd had more people, this is one in eight, one in nine, we would have shown the efficacy, I think. Uh, what, we, what you really want to look at is these high numbers where you've got, you know, seven out of a, out of 100 and, uh, 153 or, or seven out of 150, uh, that, that th- those are much larger numbers. And so we're much more co- confident about, about those, those, uh, those, those numbers. So we think it's in the 95% range. Uh, I noticed nobody under 18 was, or, or were, there, were there anybody under 18 tested? I can't quite tell here. Yes, there were, uh, uh, there were, there were about 150, uh, uh, people, as I recall, uh, slightly over a hundred, uh, people were, uh, between, between 16 and 18. Okay. Yeah. So now, is it, now is it, is it, is it not something that you want to give anybody younger than 16 or just, you're not sure yet? We don't know yet. We have, we haven't done the tests, right? Okay. So as soon as we do the tests are, and that that's being planned now, and hopefully we'll have those test results by the end of the summer. Um, it depends. It depends on whether we whether we're able to kind of create what they call bridging studies or not. The bridging studies show you know quite a bit of difference between a childhood uh, immune response and an adult immune response. We'll actually actually have to reconduct a full set of clinical trials. We can't apply what we've learned in these uh, clinical trials of the over 18s to those who are under 18 because their immune systems are responding differently to the vaccine. We don't think that's going to be the case and that we will be able to use bridging studies, but the worst possible scenario is, you know, we'd have to do, um, you know, what they call real world trials, uh, based on observation on, uh, on, on, uh, the children. And, uh, that, uh, uh that, that'll take probably, you know, Ju- July, August timeframe, at which point hopefully they'll be ready for school. Um, but uh, we yeah, that was that's what I was driving at is uh, the yeah. grade school kids, uh, uh, my or my even my grandson. Although he, he's only two, but my daughter wants to put him in preschool in another year or two. And I remember from my days when my daughter was in preschool, my wife and I were constantly sick. You know. So. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> that's the petri dish. Uh, yes. I, I've got a whole. Uh, I'm, uh, you know, Mike, on my, on my website, one of my friends wanted to put their kids into preschool and wanted to know what, what screening criteria uh, there were. And I'll, I'll send it over to you, uh, uh, you know, just to hear the screening criteria for, uh, for, for, for children. It's important they have a, uh, you know, a, a, 
well, anyway, I'll, I'll send it over. We can go. Why don't we go through it next week? How does that sound? Kind of. Sure, it sounds great. Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. Good. That's I think a lot of the parents are getting really tired of being the teacher, <laughs> uh, and they'd like yeah, to see their kids go back to school. Right? These kids have a lot of energy, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we were interested also in efficacy with, with regard to uh, with regard to uh, whether you were sick. And you, so here, um, in this case, about. We're, in the general population, 41% of us have some kind of comorbidity. So you can see that about half of the people who were on, uh, on and about 41%, sure enough, were <laughs> who had the placebo, uh, you know, had uh, no comorbidity, com no more, no comorbidity versus some having some comorbidity. You can see that even if you had a bad uh, uh, comorbidity, and again, the number of cancer, we just didn't have enough. Uh, at all in the overall sample. I think uh, if we had more cancer uh, survivors, we would have had a higher number here, um, but we didn't have that many in. in. But the, other than that, other than that one uh, group, uh, you can see that basically, even if you've got a bad comorbidity, you're, you should, uh, you're still at 95% efficacy, uh, which is great news, obviously, because the people at comorbidity, which we'll get into in a little bit, are at a much higher uh, they're about, uh, you know, if you've got two or three of these comorbidities, you're at a seven times higher chance of dying if you get the disease. So it's great that these people are having good outcomes being on the vaccine. Uh, here we've got so the overall numbers with or without evidence of infection prior to seven days. You can see that uh, there was uh, this is a secondary endpoint. So the, the primary endpoints were only those without evidence of infection. We actually did test for people who did have uh, some evidence of infection. And you can see... Um, it's important that if you've even if you've had COVID, get this vaccine because it's that much more effective for you. Um, in this, in, 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 if you're if you uh, if you even if you've had the 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 the, the disease. So here are the case definitions we went through. You can see that um, here is is what a normal kind of a, 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 what they call a, a mild or or a, a, a disease outcome is, and then we also looked at severe outcomes. And this is probably the most important because if you've got severe outcomes, including respiratory failure, shock, severe systemic illnesses, or even or, or you're on your way to dying through ICU admission, you know you want to be able to slow that down. And what we found was, oops, I'm sorry, that we do protect against severe disease. Now the numbers aren't that big, but they're incredibly significant because don't forget we tested 44,000 people, uh, so you can get to uh, uh, you can get to a uh, a, a number that looks like this out of the out of seventeen thousand people, one of them got uh, uh, who were who had the who had the actual drug. One of them got what they call severe COVID. This one person was asked about quite a bit because we were concerned about uh, what what kind of person this person was. Um, and it turns out that her severe adverse event did not cause hospitalization. She was uh, on a, she had a pulse oximeter and her pulse oximeter read 93 at one point. And 93 pulse oximetry, you know, frankly, my, my pulse oximetry runs at around 93. So uh, it's a, it's a uh, you know, uh, so she did go at, to 93. And, and for that reason, she was cited to have a severe adverse event. Now, the people on placebo, their experience was a little bit different. Nine, I think nine of them, uh, they say five, uh, 14, I'd say. So efficacy of the first severe, uh, 14 people. Of these 14, uh, nine of them were hospitalized. Of those nine, six of them went into the ICU, uh, and three of them were put on ventilators. 
So you can get, <laughs> so you want to be on this vaccine. You do not want to be one of those people on the ventilators, right? Uh, and so it's it's a it's a you know a, a very very significant finding that we are uh, finding efficacy even against the most severe uh, cases uh, of uh, of uh, of COVID. And here is the money shot, right? The money shot says uh, that if you look at the cumulative instances of COVID, which population would you rather be in? Would you rather be in the, those that have, uh, you know, a, a 2% cumulative occurrence? Uh, or would you rather be in one that has a 0.002% occurrence, right? <laughs> and you'd rather be in this group. Uh, and in fact, when you look even closer, what we find is... Uh, that despite those tighter levels that you saw that showed a, a big uh, the importance of, of having a second dose, even after, oh, I'm sorry, let me go down one, apologies. If you, if you blow up, if you blow up, oh, I'm sorry, I'm, I jumped around a little bit here. If you blow up that little area down between seven and 21 days, look at that separation, right? We're just climbing up at about the same rate as every, uh, you know, whether you've had the shot or not. Day nine, it's absolutely parallel, right? Day 10, parallel. Day 11, parallel. Day 12, complete separation occurs. It doesn't, it never comes back. Hmm. After about 12 days, you're in pretty good shape to be what we think, uh, uh, you know, to to avoid COVID completely. Hmm. Uh, So that's, uh, that's, that uh, result, which I thought, you know, was incredibly significant. The reason that it may be significant is we may be able to get to one dose right now. That's not recommended. We are going to uh, hit everybody with two doses because you saw of the, of the result of phase one trials, which showed that number of, of, uh, uh, of antibodies in, increasing so much for the second dose. And that, the reason that's important is because we might be protected but we want to be protected for a long time. Like I said, our longest uh, experience is 1.5 years of duration for these kinds of vaccines. We'd love it if we get way up there on the on the on the immuno, immuno, immuno curve and then have a lot longer time to come back down and be protected for that much longer, so you avoid the next booster shot. So that's the idea of having that second booster, and why it's going to be so important to have that second booster. We think. Now, this is the Pfizer trials. Uh, have you done anything with Moderna yet? I do. I have. <laughs> and that will all come out this week. Uh, actually, on okay. Wednesday, we'll, we'll, uh, it'll all be published. All right. Um, uh, I, I have a little bit of, of information beyond that. Uh, Moderna, um, at a high level, uh, you know, this isn't conclusive yet because uh, it's not officially presented, but the unofficial numbers indicate that Moderna has fewer side effects, and we'll get into that in a second. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and, uh, and it's, of course, easier to transport. It's minus 20, not minus 70. Um, and uh, there's some positive things about the Moderna drug that uh, that uh, we I think it might make it a little bit better uh, than the Pfizer drug even. Um, well, and more readily available. I I, I saw one broadcast yeah. that said that Pfizer has only 30 million doses for the U.S. or some number like that, and they're under contract. Then to, to the next batch has to go to Europe or other places like That's that, correct. right? Yeah, that's right. A lot, a lot of these are split, right? So Sanofi's, we, 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 get, we get a lot of AstraZeneca drug, 300 million doses, but 600 million are going over to Europe and other parts of the world. So you've got to watch the splitting. Uh, and of course, it's a, it's a global supply chain. So that, 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 that actually helps, believe it or not, 
it's better to vaccinate the, the world than it is just one one country, uh, because that one country then is, <laughs> yeah, depending on the kind of vaccine you've got, can really uh, get a bad bounce back effect. Uh, if, if everyone around them uh, uh, is is coming down with COVID all over the place, it'll then the COVID will come back to your country uh, too. If you haven't, unless you really impact transmission, and we haven't been able to demonstrate that yet. So this is uh, uh, let me go down a little bit further uh, and talk about some safety. So here's how we do safety. So we talked about efficacy. Now we're talking about safety. Uh, and you can see we talk about two different things. One is a reactogenicity subset. What this means is it means that uh, whenever you have a shot of any kind uh, that, that, that's effective, you're going to have some reaction from your immune system. So actually, reactogenicity means you don't feel so good, but it may not be a bad thing that you're having some kind of reaction because it means it's, it's actually working and stimulating your immune system. Uh, then, then we had another another group. We looked at at two month two at two month post dose. Remember that was the uh, that was the new requirement by the FDA. They originally said just one month's enough for us. Thank you very much. And then they said, nah, we better take two. So total number of pa patients uh, were forty three thousand patients, but but uh, only thirty seven thousand of them had the two month. Uh, window of observation, and we have to go through and continue on and find and, and, and continue to observe the other 6,000 that are remaining. But still, you'll see that we've split the group basically into two areas, one of 8,000 subjects and the other uh, with 37,000 subjects, of whom 19,000 actually had our drug. So we're looking at, when you look at these adverse events, you're looking at the, the results of from, from 19,000 people generally, or 8,000 people who are actually asked every few, you know, every at, at a regular period, how are you feeling today? How are you feeling today? So let's take a look uh, uh, on that. And the answer was, Doc, I feel pretty good after day one, but at day two, we don't feel very good. <laughs> you can see that day two, they started to feel a lot of a uh, little bit of fever. A lot of them had fatigue, right? About half of them had fatigue. Some had headaches, some had chills. And don't forget, this is, um, and you can see basically the over 55-year-olds actually had, their immune systems aren't quite as good. So they had less of, a, uh, of, the, of this, of, of this uh, effect than the younger, than the younger groups. Uh, but uh, still, you know, you're going to feel tired. You might have a little headache. Take, usually take some Tylenol and it went away. You might have some chills. Uh, a little bit of muscle pain. And that changed on uh, dose one versus dose two. So you can take a look at, uh, I'm sorry, here's the placebo numbers. And you can see what's interesting is people had these effects anyway, if they did, if, whether they had uh, were on the drug or they weren't on the drug, right? So it turns out that you've got to reduce these numbers a little bit like fatigue. Well, you know, right? So the 50%, 60% of people said that we got some fatigue. Um, uh, but uh, of those, you know, there was at least a couple of people who had extreme fatigue and or so called severe fatigue in the placebo group. So if you start to, you know, uh, weight, weight, weight average the, the results, you'll see that actually in, the, in this case, you know, even you know, just going through the experiment gives you a little bit of fatigue and headache and chills. And so correcting for that, the big thing is this is this chill area that you can see that 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 is that is significant and muscle pain. Those are those are significantly different um, than the, the than the, the placebo group but with uh, with headache and fatigue. Uh, there's an there's an you know the we'll have a little bit of it, but uh, the things that will really be different are the chills and muscle pain. Um, and then uh, we will. Well, that's I mean, most you a lot of shots. I've I've recently had a tetanus shot and the the oh, two yeah. shot. Um, the the 
two shot. Oh shoot. I forgot blanking on the name of the, of the ailment um, uh, regimen. And, and both of those, my arm was sore as heck for days. Oh, after. Yeah. 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 The, uh, uh, so, so, that was the, the, the two shot shingles thing. Yeah. That, exactly. I, yeah the shingle I, shot will get you. <laughs> I felt like crap after the second one. I really did. Oh, well, the second one is, is, is going to be uh, a little of a worse effect as you saw from the numbers than the first one. Yeah. Um, here, what we're really interested in, ultimately, you're going to have a lot of people who have sore arms. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was that was the most reported uh, uh, piece. And then there were, some, but but what we're, what we're really interested in is, does it have any systemic effects on your organ systems? And mm. you can see that based on people who got the drug and didn't get the drug, it is there's almost no impact, right? The placebo group, this is why it's so important to have a placebo group, right? <laughs> uh, because you don't know uh, whether just going through the experiment causes some of these effects or not. And in this case, you can see that cardiac disorders were the same, whether you got a saline solution or whether you got a, a, the active nervous system disorder, where that was the same, whether you got basically a placebo or not. Neoplasms, again, the same, and the same thing about, it turns out if you're um, you know, other other complications were even worse than the placebo group than <laughs> in the other group, uh, in the active group. So this is a this is the most important thing, and that basically we're seeing that this is com- a completely safe vaccine. It's really a remarkably safe vaccine, uh, we, and we, there were lots of questions about whether this vaccine, if there were what they call reverse transcriptase uh, complications, or or and that that would mean that the RNA suddenly intercalated with your own DNA and caused problems. Not, nothing like that ever occurred. Uh, we were concerned about um, uh, AD, what they call ADE, which is antibody-dependent enhancement, which causes, which means you get a small impact of, of the vaccine that then selects for the worst possible virus in the world, and you get that virus. And, and that's, that's, that happens with dengue fever, for example, our shots for dengue fever, and that's not a good effect. We're watching for that very carefully. That's why AstraZeneca was shut down for as long as it was. We were concerned about uh, ADE in, uh, in, in in central nervous system uh, infection. And in fact, we saw we've saw now decided that there was none at all. That's a different drug, by the way. It's not, it has nothing to do with Pfizer's drug. Different technology, different everything. Um, here's the death. Uh, more more people died uh, getting saline injection than got uh, than, than on the drug. There were some. Uh, uh, there were some uh, issues. Uh, Bell's palsy. Uh, we had four cases of Bell's palsy uh, in the in the active group. None in the placebo group. And this is an immune response. Um, uh, again, you know, four in in uh, twenty thousand is something that uh, is expected. Uh, and sometimes it spontaneously, usually it spontaneously remits. Uh, but we're, we are watch, watching that now as well. So basically, highly tolerable, no no significant safety findings at all in the in, in either group. So you can see we've hit all the all the uh, primary objectives. We've hit all the secondary objectives. Uh, we hit ninety three percent effectiveness rate. I mean, this is about as good as it gets, right? If you're taking a course in advanced calculus, you'd like to have this kind of a <laughs> of, of a of a of a score, uh, right? A, for FDA definition, for CDC definition, for WHO definitions, um, uh, the results were just overwhelming that we were have a, a very, very good vaccine here um, and 95% uh, efficacy with no safety concerns. So that's as good as it gets. Uh, there is one group, of course, uh, that uh, is still, um, we are going to do some more work. Um, we're going to look at hospitalization endpoints, ED endpoints, um, uh, 
And then we're going to start to look at more specific populations. You mentioned earlier, Matt, about race and ethnicity. We want to have more. We'll, we'll do that. We'll do more nursing home residents work. We'll do more healthcare worker. We want to understand more about vaccine efficacy in, in the real world because this is highly controlled. Everyone's you know saying, "Hey, I want to sign me up. I'm interested." They they go through selection processes. Usually, when we go into the real world, people will be slightly older, slightly sicker than the people who are accepted. Uh, have have fewer adver- uh, uh, have fewer uh, allergies and so on. Um, and so we'll, we'll look at, at that. Uh, Pfizer wants to look at, uh, oops, I'm sorry about that, boostability. Uh, I'm, I'm going the wrong way, apologies. They want to look at boostability, uh, uh, understand that better based on real levels in, in, in people, uh, what, what, their, what their immune response has been. They want to look at dose ranging studies in pediatrics, worried about the children, want to look at pregnancy, we want to look at the immunocompromised, people who are taking drugs because they're on uh, cancer chemotherapies. They want to look at a second generation formulation like, uh, uh, like that that uh, Moderna has that is more refrigerator stable. And they also want to look at a single big kind of capability for both flu and uh, and uh, and and COVID at the same time. There's every year, so that's uh, that's what they're thinking about. And what I thought. Now we only have a few minutes. Uh, one one last population that's of interest, of course, is people who are still enrolled. Right. What they decided to do was they decided to say, fine, if you we're going to issue the EUA, the Emergency Use Authorization. If you're on, if you're in a trial and you want to know whether you're getting a placebo or a real dose, you can do that. Um, or you can continue on the trial until a vaccine becomes available in your area and then get the vaccine. At that point, we will break open uh, the, the code and let you know whether you've got a real one or not. Uh, and then if you, have a, if you don't have a real one, we will inject you and, and 21 days later put you on dose four. That will, uh, that will force us to slowly lose the placebo group, but it's the ethical thing to do. I mean, if, you're, you know, if, you're, uh, if, you're, if you've been happy to sign up, then it's the right thing to do, right? Uh, just to give these guys the right the right thing at the top of uh, as soon as they become eligible for it in their normal population, so that's uh, that's that, um, and uh, yeah, so that that so the so the, and the result was that the FDA agreed that they had a good drug uh, a vaccine and they were going to uh, approve the EUA, which they did, and now it is shipping, um, and this was their conclusion. Um, came out of came out of Portage yesterday. I watched it Sunday morning. You know, so uh, well, you know, I I didn't talk about some of the some of the discussions about why we chose the groups that we did. I'll, I can do that next week. Uh, yeah, we only got four minutes left. So uh, yeah, it's a, so I would you like to see it quickly? I can do that quickly. And why, why we select? If you could do a quickie, uh, I think I think I can do it pretty quick. Uh, so here, here we go. Uh, I will do that. And basically, the reason that we chose the people that we did were, um, if you if you look at seroprevalence, you'd think that a whole world had COVID, right? It turns out that if you look at what really is truly seroprevalence in, in Michigan, only about less than ten percent of us actually have antibodies to COVID. So if hmm. we don't, if we just let you know this this thing go, it's going to take us an awful long time without a vaccine to get healthy through natural immunity. Uh, you can see New York has the highest. They're at twenty three percent, and in most states in 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 the Midwest are at between you know are, are kind of two to three percent. Hmm. Uh, even though we've had this many deaths, even though we've had this, you know, so we've got a long way to go if we want to kind of rely on natural immunity. So the question becomes: Okay, fine. Who gets the who gets uh, the um, uh, the vaccine first? And the answer 
Um, uh, this this thing jumps on me. I'm, I'm sorry. The answer is if you look at people who are hospitalized most, it's the people who are in the in the 65 plus. Even though most of most people who have the disease are between the ages of 18 and 49, the vast majority of those you have a four times better chance of getting uh, of getting hospitalized if you're over 65. So mm. that's a population that we want to vaccinate first because the people who have um, you know who who are walking around young don't have these symptoms. Well, wouldn't you know it? I'm 64. So, oh, uh, not quite. Sorry, Matt. You yeah, lose. yeah, you're in that. You're in the. <laughs> Be happy. Back of the line. Not much. Yeah. It turns out the difference between being 60 and 65 and this one and, and over 70 is like a threefold increase in, in death rate. So okay, uh, be right. happier in that lower rate, age. <laughs> Here's the hospitalization numbers. We, we really want to start to watch those 65 and olders. You can see they're less hospitalized now because they're staying away and trying to be more careful with their masking. Uh, but we still have an awful lot in that group. And so those are the people who are likely to overwhelm the hospitals by having too many people come. And if we overwhelm the hospitals, then we know the death rates are, are, are you know, are, are two to 14 times what they are if you don't overwhelm the hospitals. And so we also know that, that, that Hispanic, uh, Black, uh, uh, are much more susceptible and go to the hospital a lot, lot often. Again, we want to watch that, that overwhelming the hospital impact. So we're going to preferentially vaccinate the Hispanic, Latino, and the Black communities uh, because that makes the most sense for our health system. also makes more sense for them. If you're Black, four times higher chance of dying than if you're white. If wow. you're, you know, three times higher chance of dying. If you're if you're Latino, then if you're white, um, I have to give you the one minute warning, Fred. One minute warning. Here we go. You ready for the big the big? Uh, uh, we'll we'll go into so here are your chances of dying if you're uh, in your age group tenfold higher if you are uh, if if you are over eighty five years if you get this disease than if you are an average age. If you're male, thirty percent higher chance of dying. If you're immunosuppressed, forty percent higher chance of dying. These are big numbers on a population basis but these mm. are the ones like people in the red box are the ones we want to get to first because they're going to be most impacted um, we also want to watch out for their uh, underlying medical conditions if you're severely obese four times higher chance of dying than if you, if you don't um, uh, and so diabetes and kidney disease are the other big indicators Car coronary disease isn't good uh, but at least it isn't quite as high as these other disease types and if you start adding them all together huge impacts, right? Five times higher. If you've got three of these comorbidity things collectively, you've got a big problem. That's why we're selecting people who are older and people who are in healthcare. And here, if you're a nurse in healthcare, you're at 6% of the population, you, you're, uh, but, but uh, about 30% of the people who, who are in healthcare are nurses. Those are the people who are really most um, most likely to catch the disease. And for that reason, we're starting with nurses and we're starting with elderly with comorbid conditions. So hopefully that makes sense. It do. Yeah. All right. So we're going to have to leave it at that. We'll bring you back next week uh, and get caught up on a lot of these other things. Maybe we, we can, can talk, talk about, about Moderna at that Moderna. point. Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, there are all sorts of things to talk about. <laughs> yes. There's no shortage of topics. I'll tell you that. So <laughs> looking forward to it, you guys. Great stuff. All right. Thanks very much, Fred Brown, our uh, epidemiologist and infectious disease expert with yet more useful information on the uh, COVID pandemic. We'll be back again next Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Until then, it's Matt Rausch and Mike Brennan.
And you're watching the M Squared TechCast, MITechnews.tv at Podcast Detroit and wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Thanks for listening to M Squared TechCast, a live internet radio show all 